We just got back from a great family road trip. Kind of a special thing, because Amy doesn't usually travel with me. But Amy and I hopped into the car, and we brought our dog, Russell. We drove out through Missouri, Kansas, Colorado, up through Wyoming, got snowed in in Laramie. We went down into Utah and visited her brother and, and a sister-in-law there in Utah. Got to see some buffalo, went down through Monument Valley, Arches National Park. Came down through New Mexico and got on Route 66 in Tucumcari. Took it all the way through Oklahoma and then headed on back home. And we stopped in so many, you know, wonderful roadside type stops along the way. It's had, had a lot of fun. You know, it's two weeks. It's a lot to cram into there. And there's no way I'll be able to talk about everything here. There just isn't enough time. But if you want to see pictures of it, you can go to facebook.com slash Otis Gibbs Music. I put some pictures up there. I put even more pictures on my Instagram account. I think it's instagram.com slash Otis Gibbs. I might talk about a few of the stops sometime in future episodes. But for now, it feels great to be home. But there's nothing as fun as spending a couple weeks on the road with the family and seeing the great American roadside. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Duncan Phillips. Duncan is a singer and a songwriter, and he's the son of the folk music legend Utah Phillips. You can find out everything you need to know about Duncan at thelongmemory.com. I've been a big fan of Utah Phillips for a long time. He's a great songwriter. And I think he's one of the best storytellers America has ever produced. I put him right up there with Mark Twain. I've recently become friends with his son, Duncan. It was beautiful to get to know him and hear some of the stories. When I was recently in Salt Lake City, I asked Duncan if he'd mind telling a few stories about his dad. And he was really gracious and generous. And he invited me over to his home there in Salt Lake City. And we sat down and he just shared a lot of great stories. I really enjoyed it. For those of you who've never heard Utah Phillips and you're looking for a place to jump in, I'd recommend Starlight on the Rails. That's a good place to start with some songs and stories about those songs. And if you want to dive a little bit deeper, I'd go to I've Got to Know. Some really heavy-hitting stories there. And if you just want to hear one, go to What is a Pacifist? and You'll get a good idea of who Utah Phillips was. There's also a large archive of Utah telling stories at thelongmemory.com that I urge you to go check out. If you enjoy or are curious about him in any way, I think you'll get a big kick out of that. But this was a great thrill for me to get to sit down and talk to Duncan about his dad. 
Here's Duncan Phillips. You know, who my dad was really depends on the period of time that you're talking about. Like, for instance, people that knew him back here in Utah before he ran for the U.S. Senate in the early days in his bluegrass really know him as Bruce Phillips. And it's interesting because when I talk to him nowadays, they always make a point that I know that they knew him as Bruce. It's really interesting. Then there's other people out there that know him as Utah, and there was a difference between Bruce and Utah. He used to tell me if he had to live his life like Utah, I would kill him. He had to learn how to live his life as Bruce, too, and that was kind of the way he evolved. And it all started in the early days in Cleveland. He used to live by the railroad tracks, and as a young boy, he'd go down and hang out with the, uh, the hobos in the, bo- in the hobo jungle, and he started to learn about railroad culture. Um, but he had an unfair advantage because he really had a photographic memory. He was a genius, so, and he was curious, and he had common sense. So, you know, he could always learn, he wanted to be curious about the hobos and would learn about them, but then he could always remember everything they told him and all the stories they told him. And, you know, and then another th- great thing that shaped his life was the Korean War. You know, he went over there towards the end, the mid-50s. <laughs> you start with stories, you, you end up going backwards because you expand, you know. <laughs> when he was uh, 19 years old, there's a famous song that came out of the story. When he was 19 years old, he went to Father Lieber's mission down in Bluff, Utah. Volunteered down there, and he met a young woman. I'll leave her name out of the story. And they got married and honeymooned in the Hogan down in Bluff, Utah. And they came back, and then one day, the way my mother told the story is he came home and had informed his new wife that he joined the Army. And that's not really a real solid way to set up a new relationship, <laughs> right? So he shipped out, and he just... He wasn't meant for the army, you know. He'd run away all the time. He'd go AWOL all the time and go, and go around the towns and the villages. But, and he'd come back on base. Nobody would ever do anything about it. They're like, where you been? He'd explain it to him, and he could get away with that. You know? But through doing that, he got to see the parts of the city and what war did to him. You know? And he's, he told an old story about seeing Marian Anderson, the famous opera singer, singing a bombed-out school there where the, sh- the roof was gone off the school and the rain was pouring down. You know, those things really shaped him. And so because of the way that he had joined the Army after being a newlywed, of course he got a Dear John letter. You know, it was inevitable, right? So when he was coming back from the war on that troop ship man coming back up to Alaska, he wrote Rock, Salt, and Nails, probably one of his most covered songs he's ever written. You know, and he never sang that song. He sang it once to Rosalie Sorrell's in her living room up here in, in um, the Avenue as part of Salt Lake City where we lived. But Rosalie had a good memory and learned the song and recorded it. And she's the one that really kept that song out there in the world for people to learn. And I need to clear up one thing. A lot of people, my father would talk about on stage that he didn't sing that song and people got the impression that he didn't like that song. He was quick to point out he just didn't feel that way anymore about it. And the woman that he had written about was very much alive, and he thought it was you know, disrespectful for him to sing that song. So he never would. But you know, he included it in his four-CD box set, Rock, you know, Starlight on the Rails. So you know, I'm assuming from talking to him and the fact that he included it in his body of work that he was all right with the song. 
I've always heard a story, and I don't know if it's true or not, about Bob Dylan uh, wanting to record that song. It's on his basement tapes. I don't know the ex- exact story behind that, but I've heard Dylan's version of it. I, man, I've heard you know so many versions of that song from Flat and Scruggs to Buddy and Judy Miller to Hank Williams Jr. All kind of Joan Baez, Linda Ronstadt. I mean, Steve Young. Yeah, Steve Young's is a great version. The mythology that I'd always heard was he didn't allow Dylan to put that onto one of his early albums because he had a problem with Columbia Records. So well, he turned down the paycheck or something? Well, that's entirely true. I mean, I really haven't heard that story much about him not letting Dylan record it because of the label Dylan was on. But that's probably entirely true because at one point Johnny Cash approached him and wanted to record a whole album of his songs. And Johnny said, you know, Daddy was to train the song you wrote for your boy. That would be a number one hit. I guarantee it. And, but my dad hated the record industry. He, wanted, he didn't have a manager. He didn't like anything about it. It, it. it would take your body of work and give you nothing and put you out on the street. That's the way you looked at it. So he thought about it for a long time and asked a lot of people, you know, because Johnny said, I know you don't like the industry, but think about all the good you could do with that money. You could help the homeless people. You could help all those people that you, you, you fight for. And he thought about that, and then he talked to Phil Berrigan, a good activist friend of his, and Phil says, it's really simple. You can get that money from letting Johnny record your songs, but you got to remember when you go help those people, where did that money come from? You want to take money from an industry you despise and help the people that you love? And so in the end, he, turned, he wrote Johnny a real nice letter, and he said, you know, I understand you can get the mechanical license to do this. You really don't need my permission. But I would really respect it if he didn't record those songs. And Johnny never did. And a lot of people, you know, gave my father a lot of grief because when he went out on the road or started his year, he would figure out what he needed to make every month to survive. And that's the number of shows he would book. He didn't want excess, you know, and so he didn't, he didn't need all the extra money. Well, Ammon Hennessy was a Dorothy Day. He's one of Dorothy Day's people that sent him out here. The, the Catholic workers would set up houses in different parts of the country, houses of hospitality, depending on what that city needed. You know, here in Salt Lake, we needed a place for the rough and tumble homeless people to come be able to stay and get a meal. And Ammon Hennessy ran it kind of on the premise that you had to be nonviolent and there was no substance abuse. And, you know, Ammon was a war resistor, a tax dodger. It was, was, my dad described as a a one-man revolution. You know, he'd walk with an empty grocery cart from grocery store to grocery store all day long, picking up the food that they would throw out of the grocery store because it was outdated. And he would take it back and feed the people the Joe Hill house. And when my father started hanging out there, he was, you know, when he got out of the Korean War, he started riding trains all over the country, spent years on the trains. Made him a pretty rough and tumble guy. His hobo moniker was Bowtie. He was actually Grand Duke of the Hobos at one point. So when he got to the um, Ammon Hennessy in the Joe Hill house, he was really rowdy. He'd get in a lot of fights, and Ammon said, you need to quit fighting because you're no good at it. You keep getting thrown through the window, my place gets torn up, you know. you got to learn to be a pacifist. So 
my Aunt Hennessy started to teach my dad what it was as a, how did he explain it? He says, as a, a white male in modern America, you're born with every privilege, perceived privilege, racial, economic, sexual privilege. You need to lay, learn how to lay those things down and go out into the world unarmed and be equal with everybody. And then he says, oh, and by the way, you need to become a fat pacifist because you're too violent. You need to let that go. It's like being an alcoholic. You have to learn to deal with it, your propensity for a violence every day, you know, and, and admit, you know, I am an alcoholic or I am violent. I need to put and confront it every day and work on it. And it was, it was just not just being the pacifist, but it was also, like I said, the economic privilege and all the things that most of white Americans, older white Americans, feel privileged for that we take for granted. And my dad would explain that that's what he spent the rest of his life trying to learn how to do was from those teachings of Ammon Hennessy. Now, that's why it's so important for him to work in to his shows about the Korean War. You know, his shows always seemed like they were kind of off the cuff. But they were really put together thoughtfully. He always explained to me how you put a show together. If you sing a couple folk songs, win people over, then you get a couple songs that you can sing about whatever you want and offend them if you want, and they'll forgive you, and then you come back and you sing a few more folk songs. So he figured out how to articulate latest shows so he could talk about all these things that he cared deeply about in the world and tell stories, but also entertain people. He would write out a set list for every show. I've got him downstairs, probably 300 set lists, little um, eight, you know, five-by-six pieces of paper, and he would save all those set lists. If he ever went back anywhere, he'd pull out the previous set list and make sure he didn't duplicate anything, see what he talked about, see what worked, what didn't work, and he'd craft another show for that town. A great storyteller, too. Oh, yeah. In the American tradition of storytelling, he seems to be right there at the top of it. Yeah, definitely. You know, that was part of the, his gift and the curiosity to go search those stories out. You know, you'd find out about a town he's going to, and he would make a point not to stay up and drink late after the show so he could go the next day, get up early, and go find out about these things. Who's buried where and what happened where and learn about those stories. You know, he's just so intensely curious. When we talk about his Senate run, I've never understood whether that was a serious, passionate thing. Oh, or yeah. He was the peace and freedom ticket. Um, he was, it was very serious. He got 5,000 votes here in Salt Lake City. He was more popular. <clears throat> he would go out with a presidential candidate for the peace and freedom ticket, and nobody wanted to listen to him. They wanted to listen to my dad give speeches. He was really serious about it, and he did a good job, and he was an archivist for the state of Utah up until they wanted him to run for the peace and freedom ticket, and he said, well, I have to quit my job, you know, be able to run like I want to run. So he quit his job and you can he would tell the story that the governor, every day when before he quit, he's walking up, up and down the stairs. The governor said, you know, you're not going to win. And when you're done running, you're never going to work in the state again. You know, because he was he was that influential. I mean, 5,000 votes in the city in Salt Lake City in 1968, that's a lot of votes. Yeah, I remember going to a couple rallies vaguely and 
he had just a goatee back then, short hair, pretty clean cut. I got a picture around here somewhere, an article. And it was a serious deal. And sure enough, after he lost, he couldn't go back to work for the state. He couldn't find work anywhere. Um, somebody at the Joey Hill house had brought in some alcohol and an underage person. And the cops were going to come raid the Joey Hill house. He's already separated from my mom. And he, was, he, had, to, he had to leave. He had to figure out what he's going to do. So he went to Sugar House Park one night, rainy night. He knew the spot where Joe Hill was executed. And he thought about what he needed to do in his life. And he loaded up his VW bus and started driving across the country. Wound up in Cafe Lena's in Saratoga Springs, New York. It was Lena that told him he was a folk singer. You know, it's the oldest continuously running coffee house in America. You know, it's the site of the big folk revolution. Dylan played there. Arlo played there. Everybody's played there. My dad lived in and out of the of Cafe Alina's and stayed there for a couple of years working on his craft and kind of exploring the country as a folk musician. What kind of gigs was he playing at that time? All small ones like the Gaslight, you know, places like that, wherever he could play. And it was it was storytelling and he was doing the train stuff and you know, he was back east talking about the West and you know, some of those older shows I listened to, it's Part storytelling, part comedy, and, you know, and singing. He's a great finger picker and a good singer. You know, his shows are great. Now, I don't know if you ever read Steve Martin's autobiography. He talks about the time that he opened for my father in Chicago. Chicago up in Chicago, Dad was one of Earl's pearls. Earl Bianchi up in Chicago. had, And there was an opener that canceled, so they are trying to find somebody to come open for my father. Steve Martin had just started out his comedy routine and was playing banjo. So they got Steve Martin to come open for him at this show. Steve Martin knows he killed it. He says, this was just, I bet it was amazing. <laughs> he said, Steve Martin says, I know they, I killed it. And it's in the days where they did nice write-ups in the newspaper, right? So he went and got the newspaper the next day and opened it up. And there's this big one-and-a-half-page article about the show. And the one small paragraph's about Steve Martin, and the rest of it was about my dad. He was, <laughs> he was so mad because he just, just knew it was a show that he killed. <laughs> you know, up in the Chicago area, there was um, somebody else's trouble that Holstein and Steve Goodman, a lot of people, and John Prine. I think there's a lot of, it's like a co-op that the musician started, and he loved that part of the country. I mean, he, he played everywhere except Oklahoma. Is there a reason why? I'm sure, but he never told me. But it was, it was the only state that he never played in. Oh, he would get up, make uh, make a little bit of coffee, maybe. Once in a while, he'd read the newspaper. He would answer the phone or do his work until 10 o'clock. <laughs> What's his his work? Would they be writing songs? Would they be writing songs or answering emails or setting up shows or... If somebody called up, he would answer it till about 10 o'clock. Then after 10 o'clock, he would go out and work in the yard a little bit. And he'd go walk around town and talk to people in town in Nevada City where he lived. He would, he started the Peace Center down there. He started a place called Hospitality House that was, uh, it was originally modeled after a, every church in the community took the responsibility every night for housing the homeless. So that responsibility was shifted between churches from night to night. And, and eventually they got a permanent shelter 
and opened it up and it would be open at night and it housed about 55 people. And they just got a grant two years ago and bought a new building and remodeled and it's called Utah's Place. So now, you know, that's an example of whatever you talked about on stage, you're damn sure when you got off stage, he's working to improve those conditions. Now, I like to tell young artists, there's a lot of influences out there. You could be influenced by Dylan or Springsteen, Johnny Cash, most anybody. But there's very few people that would influence you, a musician like my father did, musically, but also in a way to live your life. You know, he was remarkable that way. I can remember him having conversations with um, people like Dan Byrne or Martin Joseph and explaining to them that they're in the working class. You know, as musicians, we forget that. We forget we're craftsmen or tradesmen. You know, he says, you need to treat this like you're a craftsman in the working class, and that's the way you need to approach your job. So he'd, and, he, and he would do that. He'd go talk to artists, and he, he was an organizer at heart. You know, he'd bring artists together. He loved having what he called salons in his house, where he'd bring like a cartographer or a philosopher. He'd come just a couple people and have a dinner party and bring these people together that never met and just watch their minds work together and talk about things along with him. That's, you know, part of what he really loved to do. And, you know, he worked on, he started the, he was helped started the Traveling Musicians Union, the local 1000. And he was in, instrumental in a lot of things. He was, his mind was always working and he was always busy. But if you saw him around just normal day, you'd probably see him mumbling to himself, talking to himself, but there's something going on in there working, you know? And you're writing it down, he's already working on what he's gonna do next. You know, as an example of the life you led, he was a hobo, right? So him and Jim Ringer were going to react to famous overalls brigade. It was a IWW march from Portland to Chicago to interrupt the um, National Assembly, I think it was. It's a really famous thing that happened. So Jim Ringer and my father and another fellow hopped the freight train in Portland, and were going to start making their way to Chicago. Um, it took them three months. They got on the wrong train somewhere in Montana, did shows along the way, handed out those old little wobbly cartoons, did union shows, and react, reenacted the whole thing. And this is an example of what being a hobo is like. Hood River Blackie would explain it's the ultimate freedom, but a lot of people don't realize how intense that freedom can be. So my dad finally made it to Chicago after three months to play a show at the IWW Union Hall. And the promoter came up and said, my God, Utah, where have you been? We've been looking for you. Your mother died a month ago. And then he didn't have any money, so it took him another month to get back home on the train. But see, that's what Hood River Blackie would talk about, that freedom. When you're a train person, you, get, you have freedom, but to have that freedom, you have to give up maybe... You don't know when your kids graduate. You don't know when your brother and sisters pass away. There's a lot of things in life that you have no idea. You have this ultimate freedom out there on the rails. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's amazing where his songs pop up. And a lot of, sometimes people don't even know he wrote them. And that's what he wanted. He wanted all of his music going to the public domain which I don't think it legally can till you're dead 100 years. You know, he would, he would love it if somebody was singing their, his song out there, but they had no idea where it came from. 
He wrote The Green Rolling Hills of West Virginia, really a wonderful song. And he told me that years later, he was driving around back east somewhere, and there's this bumper sticker that said, The Green Rolling Hills of West Virginia, the nearest place to heaven that I know. And he says, that's folk music. That's why you write stuff. So that person with that bumper sticker probably has no idea where that phrase came from or what song it came from. And thus was stuff he was proud of. When things got out there in the world that he created, but nobody had an idea who created, created it. You know, it just goes into folklore, into, into myth. You know, and he, first he came off the road in the mid-'80s when he um, ran the World's Fair, might have been the late 70s, and started a family again. I had my little brother and sister up in Spokane. He'd been off the road for a while. He couldn't play. He had some ligament problems in his hands. And his really good friend Kate Wolf had come down with her leukemia. And Kate and my dad are really tremendous friends, really good friends. And Kate called my dad up and said, you know, Bruce, I've got this whole tour booked. These people are really count on, counting on me to come play. And I don't want to disappoint them. Will you take my tour dates up and play all my obligations? And my dad's like, you know, Kate, I can't play guitar anymore. My hands just don't do it. And she said, don't worry, Bruce. Nobody ever came to your shows to listen to you play guitar. <laughs> So, but it got him back out on the road that first time, you know. He went out, took those dates, learned how to play guitar in a limited way because his finger picking was no longer. And it got him back out on the road in a whole new version of himself, more storytelling, more, more folklore. And I remember like his introductory song, Railroading on the Great Divide, with stories, it's probably 15 minutes. I heard him do a one hour show and sing four songs. And nobody cared. Nobody even noticed. You know, it just was melded together. But later on, when I got back together with him in 2000, we'd spent decades apart. No phone calls, nothing. You know, it wasn't his fault. It's just the way it happened. But in 2000, I started, I got back together with him. And he had congestive heart failure and could really only go travel once a month. And he needed somebody to travel with him. And because of my work, I don't, work in the wintertime, I said, you know, what if I drive you on the road, drive you around, we get back together? He says, all right, we can give it a try. So our very first road trip was up to Spokane. I remember that very first road trip, driving with him on the road. And when you listen to my dad, he's such an engaging storyteller. He's a quiet talker in the car. So I remember driving up with him to Spokane and trying to hear what he was saying and reaching over my radio and turning up the dial like I was listening to something <laughs> on the radio that I didn't want to miss. I just laughed. But, you know, we got back together because he had to have somebody travel with him. You know, he could only do a couple of shows and he'd get weak and he'd have to rest and he couldn't schlep all of his stuff around. And it was just a perfect opportunity for us to get back together. And, you know, I'd go out with him, you know, every month for a while and just travel all over. And meet his people. And he always talked about me on the road. So when he was out on the road all these years, he would talk about his little boy Duncan that he left behind. So as I would start to travel around with him, I'd meet these people that knew me that I'd never met in my life. You know, I went up to Vancouver with him. This guy came up at in before a show, at an intermission or after a show, my dad was in the lobby. He wasn't a green room guy. He was with his people, you know, and this guy came up to me and says, is it true about when you had the measles? And I thought, I never had the measles. But I was really curious. I said, maybe, why? 
And he said, well, your dad would tell this story that he came home off a long road trip, walked in the back door into the kitchen, and you were at the kitchen table with your mother. And you had red spots all over your face. And your dad said, my God, does Duncan have the measles? And your mother said, no, he's just learning to eat with a fork. <laughs> so this guy's telling me the story in the lobby. Like, Dad, what kind of story have you been telling these people while you're out on the road about me? Yeah, the, yeah, those are all... We had the Loafer's Glory radio show, The Hobo Jungle of the Mind, 100 episodes. He wanted to try and get syndicated so he wouldn't have to travel. It never really worked out. You know, and he was really worried about what somebody would do with his legacy when he passed away. Because he was, he was painstakingly did what he thought was right in the world. That's why there was no autobiography or anything like that. You know, but he told me, and I got the sense from all our road conversations, he really trusted me, you know, to, to keep his work going and make it available to people but in, a, in a way that would represent him. You know, so I started developing that online archive where people could access all that stuff for free. You know, and and share and and read the stories. And I he had an old songbook, Starlight on the Rails. I had republished after talking to him in the hospital. You know what I inherit when parents pass away. Most kids look to inherit money, cars, land, a house, all those material trappings. But what I inherited was my dad's guitar and the songs and stories from his forty plus years on the road. So I like to explain it to people that what I do now is I go around the country and squander my inheritance wherever I can. <laughs> you know, Jim Fleming, you know, Fleming artist represented my dad for a long time. And I don't know if many people know this. Jim didn't get paid. Jim didn't take a dime for representing my dad. He just did it because he thought it was the right thing to do. That's the example of the community helping my father out. You know, there's a lot of people that he worked with that were drawn to him because of that. They're willing to, it's not that they were giving him a handout, it's just what it, what was needed. You know, it's not, and that's just the way he lived his life. He lived it in a manner knowing that if he did the right things, lived his life in the right way, then the right things would happen. It's a nice thing to... To say, but we really don't meet many people who actually live that way. Oh, it so takes, it stands out when we meet someone like like your father. It takes a lot of courage to try and do it. You know, you really got to put yourself out there and live it. You know, beside being my father, I don't know anybody that lived by their moral compass more than he did. You know, Johnny Cash, the stories. He had an agent for a while that was going to make a big big country star. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> I think it lasted about two weeks. <laughs> there was a good, he one good thing. The manager said, you know, you got to have a sign-off song. Every show you got to do, you have this sign-off song. So he wrote a really great song called the Hymn Song that was going to be his sign-off song for country music. A lot of the songs have been picked up as country standards, like uh, Good Night Loving Trail. But, you know, people think it's a country song and about cowboys and that, but it's really a song about growing old and your work running out on you too. That's one of my favorites. And I'd heard that for years before I realized that, you know, good night and loving were people. 
I just thought it was the name of some trail somewhere. Well, I think it's it's what Lonesome Dove was based off of. Was there an actual story of all of the Goodnight Loving? Yeah, Oliver Goodnight and Charlie Loving. Was he friends with Larry McMurtry? I'm not sure. I know there's a really great version of Tom Waits doing Goodnight Loving Trail out there. I haven't heard that. It's like in the middle of one of his shows. He says, you know, I'm going to do a Utah Phillips song, and his audience is really not wanting this. And he's talking <laughs> about it, and they're like, oh, you just shut up and sing his own. You all hush up. You're going to listen to this song. And then he does Goodnight Loving Trail. It's really funny. But in the end, when he had the congestive heart failure, and he turned down the heart transplant and couldn't tour anymore, the family was really worried about what he was going to do. We spent the whole month of February in the hospital in San Francisco. Originally, he was going to get a heart transplant. 73 years old, he's in good enough shape to be number one on the list for a heart. It's pretty remarkable. And I remember going to the hospital room the first day, and he says, you know, I've decided that I don't want to get the heart transplant. And he, you know, explained it. He says, at first I wanted to get the heart transplant for the kids, and which made me uncomfortable. It's a lot, I didn't, that seems selfish on my part. I don't want that responsibility. And then in the end, he said, you know, my heart's treated me well enough. I just want to see it out. You know, I'm just going to see what happens. And in the end, that thing that he did about turning down Johnny Cash and that choosing to live his life in his moral compass in the end, every, the community came and helped him. Checks came in from everywhere. You know, he's like, relax. People will take care of me. I paid my dues. The community will take care of me. That's exactly what he said. And the community that he's talking about is like yourself and all the artists in the community that he helped. And they, in the end, they came back and supported him until the end. It's, we spent the whole month of February getting well enough to go back home. A couple little mini stories in there. It's interesting when you condense your life into getting up every day to go spend time with somebody in the hospital. I learned this because using the transplant ward. So I learned these things from transplant people. There's a your your whole view of the world changes. You know, you get become this kind of a club. So I spent the whole month. His wife Joanna and myself spent the whole month down there at the hospital. He passed up the heart, Buckley, the gentleman, the goddess heart came in the hospital, got that heart, and was out in two weeks. My dad was still there. So it's interesting to see all these lives change places, you know? So I remember sitting in there with him one day, and it was during the Roger Clements debacle and his steroid use or whatever, and the nurse was doing something with him, and he'd, my, I had started a blog to keep people um, up to date on what my dad was doing. So I was reading this newspaper article, and he looked at me and said, something's wrong. And he went purple, and he stopped breathing. His heart stopped. And it, he had a do-not-resuscitate order, so the nurses couldn't do anything. But he had a pacemaker in him with a defibrillator that didn't get the order, so it started his heart again. So, yeah, it was amazing. I thought, is this how it's going to end? I'm reading this crappy article about Roger Clemens, and then this? I mean, so then he came back to life. And he, he came back, he was normal again. The very first thing he says is, you've got to blog about this. <laughs> Are you kidding me? The storyteller. <laughs> yeah, so I blogged about it. So we got him well enough to come back home, which meant my season was coming up to go back to work. I'd already maxed my credit cards out, staying in San Francisco for a month. 
I mean, so I, I had to go home and I'm the luckiest man in the world. You know, it's interesting when you realize you have to drive away and say goodbye to somebody knowing you're never going to physically see him again. How do you approach that? But I, was, I knew I was lucky to have that opportunity. So I got up in the morning, you know, and I said, I got to go back to work. You know, I'm sorry. We've had this month. And I said, is there anything we need to talk about? Anything we need to cover? And he said, no, I think we've covered everything over the last several years. And he said, what about you? I said, no, Dad, you know, I think we're square. And he said, there is one thing I want to tell you is that the son that I thought was lost to me for all those years, in the end, was the son that took care of me last month in the hospital. And then I got my car and I drove home. I mean, it can't get much better than that. And so, you know, he passed away probably three months later. I remember getting a phone call and driving back down there. And they left him in a state of rest in the house for like two days. And um, somebody come in that knew how to arrange that. And so people could come by and pay respects while he's still in his house. And they're like, you want to go up and see your dad? I'm like, no, man. The last time I saw him was like the greatest moment of my life. I don't need to see him like that. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Sure. I appreciate it, man. Yeah. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Duncan for inviting me into his home in Salt Lake City. You can find out everything you need to know about Duncan and his father, Utah Phillips, at thelongmemory.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.